Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe, and this is Speaking of Race. So, Joe, what are we doing today? Um, well, I wanted to talk about the new book, Cast, The Origin of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. Have you guys heard of this book? Oh, yeah. So she's she wrote The Warmth of Other Suns, right? Like that's her big that's book right. before this one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was a bestseller. She's won a Pulitzer Prize. She's a really well-known writer. And this new book just came out this year with Random House. And I was thinking, you know, it's a book about caste and race. And like we always do, I want to take our sort of mixed historic, scientific, and present-day cultural studies perspective and apply it here. That sounds good. Yeah. yeah. So there's somebody else in the recording with us. Did you Who notice is he's here? Oh. <laughs> so we have with us today Dr. Alan Goodman. I invited him on to talk with us about this book because it, it just so happened that we were reading it at the same time and we got to discussing it. And I wanted his take on it because he's a professor of biological anthropology at Hampshire College. And his name may sound familiar to you. That's because he's been a guest here before. We interviewed him and Dr. Yolanda Moses back in May 2020 about their involvement in public education around race with the American Anthropological Association. Both he and Dr. Moses are former presidents of the AAA, and they co-direct the AAA's project on race and education. So that's why I wanted to have him come on and, and talk with us. So welcome, Alan. Hi, guys. Great Hi. to be back. Good to have you back, yeah. You must have not hated us too much since you were willing to come <laughs> talk to us again. Or we um, paid him. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, Definitely right. No hate here. <laughs> so, you know, I picked up this book probably for obvious reasons, because of my interest in race and because of my interest in caste in India. And this is a topic that should be right in our wheelhouse. We already have a three-part miniseries on race in India, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And listeners can then catch up with some of the historical background on race that we'll make a little bit of reference to later today. I'm I'm really yeah. glad that we did that India miniseries because I think the the investigation of race and science is often really determined by what went on in Europe during the Enlightenment. Of course, we've had to talk about that a lot too. <laughs> but race science was very much a product of colonialization, and it, a lot of it happened in the colonies themselves, not necessarily in Europe. So in in Wilkerson's book Cast, it seems like it gives us another way to talk about race and race science, but its central thesis is not necessarily that the way that the concept of race is portrayed in the American popular media, that that's not the normative way of talking about this. Is that, Joe and Alan, is that actually why you both read it? Yes, in part. And I mean, it's worth also noting that this book has been getting a ton of press. It's been picked up by Oprah's Book Club. It's number four this week on Amazon charts. And it's also a New York Times bestseller. Well, there you go. But I think, I mean, I picked it up for reasons other than its popularity. What about you, Alan? What made you want to read it? Yeah, well, I'm kind of a junkie, I guess, for reading <laughs> almost anything that has to do with the history of race and racism and race and science and more generally. So I was really excited to hear that Wilkerson had a new book. You'd already read The Warmth of Other Suns, right? Right. Yeah. And love that book and recommend it to anybody. Yeah, that one's about the great migration in the early 20th century of African-Americans from the South to more northern U.S. states. But this new book, it 
revolves around the idea that race in the U.S. operates like a caste system, effectively. Yeah, what she fundamentally does is she compares clearly defined race-based hierarchical systems. and But what she does do <laughs> is compare Nazi Germany, South Africa, and the U.S., especially sort of focusing on the South, And that she argues that race in all of these systems is really just like a caste system. And by that, she means that they all adhere to a set of principles, what she calls the pillars of caste. And these include the sense that caste or race is either created by God or later on by evolution. You know, we're naturally different. Um, But that once created our social systems, education, employment, marriage, continue to keep the caste or the races separate. And so this parallels or kind of works off of other authors, principally, I'd say, W.E.B. Du Bois, who talked about the color line as being the major problem in the United States and the importance of policing or maintaining the color line. And this is where your friendly neighborhood historian jumps in for listeners and says that W.B. Du Bois was a late 19th and early 20th century sociologist and historian, the first African-American to earn a PhD at Harvard, was one of the founders of the NAACP in 1909, And though he had extensive works, probably his two best known books were The the Souls of Black Folk in 1903. And then he upended our understanding of Reconstruction in the post-Civil War period in the book Black Reconstruction in America in 1935. Thanks, Eric. What else did you like about the book before I get into my critical perspective on it, Alan? I mean, her writing is amazingly fluid and evocative. Mm. You know, one of the things she's really amazing at is her use of metaphors that are entirely, I think, fresh. Fantastic. I can always use a good metaphor. What did you find in the book that you really like? I'll give you one that she uses a lot. She talks about the race caste system as like moving into a used house or Ah. buying a house. And the caste she refers to as the foundation or frame of the house. And what's interesting, it's the most fundamental part of the house, but it's largely unseen. And so secondly, if you move into a house you didn't construct, you still need to take ownership and responsibility for that house. And if it's rotten or has a crumbling foundation, it's our responsibility to ah. make those repairs. That is nice. a good metaphor for like the relationship between structural racism, but then individual responsibility. Yeah. So, and speaking of structure, how does she actually structure the book? How does she make it work? Well, I would say it goes in semi-chronological order. She as Alan sort of suggested, she's really great at weaving together various threads. So on the one hand, she's got an account of race and racism in America, and she interweaves that with personal experiences, both from herself and from others of what we might call interpersonal racism. She adds in those comparisons from India and from Nazi Germany. Actually, the book even ends with a nod to the pandemic and questions about the 2020 election. So it gets right up to the present. And I think It does do a great job, as you've suggested, Alan, of delivering a really 
moving account of the true brutality of racism or what she might call casteism in the U.S. Like, there are parts of it that felt like a punch in the gut for me. Yeah, for, and I have to say for me too, personally, I think she does a, a number of things really well. Mm-hmm. What are those? Glad you asked. You know, I think as we sort of said, first she shows how deep and foundational racial hierarchies are in this country, referring back to the old caste system. She's not the first to do this. I mean, it's, and for example, you know, I could point to a lot of people, but I'll mention two books, one by the philosopher Charles Mills called The Racial Contract, which is a small book, and the other by Ibram X. Kendi called Stamp from the Beginning. Also, you know, to get back to sort of the metaphor used in the writing of the book, I think what she does really, really well is link up so her personal experiences with institutionalization of racism and the history of racism. And so one of many incidents she reports is about being on first class in a plane and being sort of mercilessly hassled as she's getting mm. off this plane. And mm. it's clear that as a black woman in first class, she's outside of her normal caste position. And these are the vignettes that feel like punches in the gut are you know, incredibly well-written and personal. The last thing I think, you know, I, I need to say is that in showing these vignettes, she also shows how racism hurts the entire society. For one, we know that it limits the flexibility and ability of people of lower caste or caste-like race to move up and fully use their talents. But it really is just a tremendous waste of time and energy for everybody. And, you know, one example she gives is about being chased and hounded through an airport by a couple of security guards mm-hmm. and how them doing that is probably only, again, because, you know, what's this black woman doing getting off of a first class plane going from, I think, Detroit from Chicago? And she mm-hmm. said, you know, What an incredible waste of everybody's energy this was to be hounding her down. Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean, I hope that the message is clear to listeners overall that we we like this book. I think you've done a good job of giving us some of the plus points, Alan. But you also suggested something I want to spend more time on here, which is Wilkerson's idea here that caste is like race, the central thesis of the book. Well, that's not a new idea. Most of the press I've seen around the book is about how she's offering this really unique take on race in the U.S., but people have actually been drawing that race-caste comparison for centuries. Yeah. Can can we put this in some historical context? Yes. (laughs) Of course, the historian wants that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, you could say this all started, this caste-race comparison started back when the first people who were familiar with one of the systems came in contact with the other of the systems. And most of that began happening during the ages of exploration and, and imperialism. Did we, we talked about Francois Beignet, right? We did, didn't yeah. we? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's all the way back in the 17th century that people started making that comparison. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he was in India, right? His travels in the Mughal empire, Beignets coming from France all the way through the Indian subcontinent, mm-hmm. making these comparisons between caste and race, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Yep, that's right. And Joe, when, when we did our series on India, I remember you talking about Herbert Hope Risley, 
That was the first episode that we did back in the summer of 2018 before Zoom became a thing <laughs> for all of us. So so are you thinking of people like Risley when you talk about the origins of this race cast comparison, the kind of colonial type characters? Yeah, yeah I am. Exactly. It was people like Risley and, and his contemporaries. And I should say it was both British and Indian people who were speculating about the parallels between race and caste almost as soon as they encountered them. It started getting written down in the late 18th century, perhaps, by folks like William Jones, who I also mentioned in one of our early episodes yes. on race and caste in India. He was he was a colonial administrator and a philologist, actually, and he's the guy who came up with the idea that's now called the Aryan invasion theory. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that for listeners who might not remember, is the idea that India's caste and ethnicity make up as we see it in the present, is the result of violent conflict that happened between dark-skinned indigenous people called Dravidians, who are still to this day concentrated in South India, and supposedly invading lighter-skinned people from Western Asia and the Middle East regions called Aryans, who are still, in fact, more concentrated in the north of India today. Don't tell them. Make them go back and listen to the episode. Okay, fair enough. Right. I won't say anything more about it, except there's no evidence to support this Aryan invasion theory. There's no like archaeological evidence showing that there was this incursion or violent conflict, yet yet this thing lives on. This idea lives on because it helps justify the dominance of certain caste and ethnic groups over others. And this might seem a little far afield from Wilkerson's book, but the point I'm trying to make here is I feel like some of that would have been really interesting stuff for Wilkerson to draw on more heavily in her book. Like, hey, here's some hotly contested race and caste stuff going on in India today, you know? Oh my God, yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah, as a biological anthropologist, I would have loved to have seen more of that. I came across a really great article in when we were chatting, Joe, mm-hmm. about this sort of geneticization of race caste, and it's by Yulia Egorova, and the article is called "Degeneticizing Caste: Population Genetic Research in South Asia," and published in 2009. And, you know, it's a a fantastic kind of critique or almost like really, you know, on the ground ethnographic example of how population genetic studies just map really imperfectly onto social groups, be they races or castes or anything. And because of these poor fits that are invariable almost, as well as different studies providing different genetic results. Folks on the ground with power, etc., go ahead and interpret them in wildly different ways, either supporting a genetic basis for caste or not. I bet yeah. things like 23andMe don't make that any easier either. <laughs> <laughs> no. We gave a a brief take on the biological issues involved with caste back in episode two of our Race in India miniseries, where we talked about problems with sampling the different groups uh, and how recently some of the groups really had separated from others. And then, as in so many genomic studies, the over-reliance on clustering techniques instead of looking at diversity partitioning. Yeah. Yeah. And those those same sort of technical debates certainly apply to what Egorova is looking at. I just reread her article to get ready for our chat today. And 
it reminded me that, you know, she's not really focused so much on the biological part, although that is important, but she's looking at how these studies get used to defend various mostly bogus nativist claims to Indian cultures and languages. These days, Hindu nationalist groups in India are kind of glomming onto studies that suggest that Aryans and their Vedic cultures originated in India instead of coming from elsewhere. So that's like anti-Aryan invasion. And, and they like that result because it helps bolster their claim that India is sort of a naturally Hindu homeland or motherland, uh, which is something that the current administration in India also supports. Yeah, I feel like um, we see that on the news all the time. Yeah. And, and you know, that that particular political agenda doesn't necessarily pit Hindu castes against one another exactly, but it certainly pits Hindus against, say, Muslims, the largest uh, religious minority in India. And then on the other hand, there are people who want to defend the inequality inherent in the caste system. And those folks love studies that demonstrate greater Aryan heritage among higher caste groups, right? Because that supposedly bolsters their claim that higher caste groups are naturally superior to lower caste groups or that yeah. they have sort of naturally always dominated lower caste groups through things like Aryan invasion, which yeah. is really kind of an old, that's like an old colonial idea. See what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, I do, and I think it's pretty shameless, but that's my fellow scientists. These sorts of scientific justifications for hierarchies seem to form all over the globe, including borrowing ideas in all directions, right? Yeah. yeah, you're right, Alan. And I guess my point here is that people have been wrestling with this one from multiple angles for decades, if, if not centuries. And what's kind of interesting is that in these contemporary debates, no one's in these circles is like very preoccupied with the minutia of how caste and race might be similar or different. No. There are other scholars who've picked that apart though, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about them a little bit today. But these folks that Egorova and others are looking at, they've already sort of moved on under the assumption that caste is race, is caste, is ethnicity, is biology, and they're all the same, right? Yeah. And there's the scientism that sort of underlies that approach reifies the realness or the naturalness of caste just as it does for race in the U.S. in this sort of unspoken way. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Does Wilkerson talk about it? Because it, it seems like that would be a good piece of evidence to support her central argument that race and caste are sort of interchangeable. Like people are just assuming all over the place that it's a real thing. Is, is, does she bring that up? No, she really doesn't. And, you know, I feel like that's kind of a shame because this is stuff that people are writing and talking about right now in India. And, you know, I guess that's one of my critiques. I'd gone into the book hoping to see at least a little bit of that. And I don't mean to say she should have spent the whole book on India, but, you know, even a couple pages or a chapter about this stuff would have, at least for me, really clinched her argument. Wait, so you're saying it's a book on caste, but there's not enough India in the book? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. I mean, okay. you know, she bases pretty much all of her discussion of India stuff on one trip that she made there for a conference once and on then on a conference that happened in the United States, actually in Western Massachusetts, where Alan is, on this question of caste and race. I would say there's not enough about India in there. I'm biased, naturally. but um, <laughs> Very. I, just, I, I do want to circle back for a minute to the earlier point I was making, though, about how, you know, plenty of other people have been comparing race and caste for quite some time. And I feel like I want to flesh this out a little bit because it's useful background for people who might want to read the book. Yeah. So we've just a minute ago touched on colonialists and now geneticists in India. But beyond then, there's actually been a lot of comparison done by scholars looking specifically at the U.S. race system. One especially good example 
maybe because it was historically important, would be the Swedish economist Gunnar Myrdal. Uh, Wilkerson touches on this just really briefly with a couple sentences, and I think digging a little deeper into how Myrtle wrote about the caste race comparison helps us see ways that this line of thinking has evolved before Wilkerson came on the scene. Yeah, we talked about Myrtle and his 1944 Carnegie-funded study of race, which was published in his book, An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem in Modern Democracy. We talked about that in our third episode on race and intelligence when we talked explicitly about the notorious footnote 11 of the 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education. Yeah. Yeah. Murdahl is cited as one of the modern authorities in footnote 11 that the justices used to demonstrate the social and psychological problems that go along with racial segregation. Mm -hmm. In the book, he went through many of the obstacles that he saw that African-Americans faced when they tried to participate fully in American citizenship. Mm -hmm. And he starts off early in the book by saying he'll refer to race in the U.S. as a caste system. Hmm. Uh, I got a quote for you, Eric. You're not going without. Alan, sorry. They they always make me read the quotes. And and they often (laughs) give me ones that are like the most racist things ever said. This isn't bad. This is your job. Okay. All right. Let me open it up here. Okay, they, meaning African-Americans, are more helplessly imprisoned as a subordinate caste in America, a caste of people deemed to be lacking a cultural past and assumed to be incapable of a cultural future. Actually, that was pretty bad. (laughs) And then in a footnote, Murdahl tells us that he's using the term caste because he sees the racial system in America as fixed. You can't move between his racial Mm -hmm. castes. And then in the second volume of the work, yeah, it's a long tome. He (laughs) says that race is like a caste because it's inescapable. And that makes it different from classes. Mm -hmm. Still, I think what's funny is that Myrdal doesn't really get that much into the scientific concept of race, even in those long books. And he doesn't even deal with some of the things that W.B. Du Bois brought up in his book, Black Reconstruction in America, which was written 10 years before Myrdal. Yeah. I'm not sure that was really the point of Myrdal's study. You know, he was an economist after all. That's fair. And and so his point was really to look at how race functions in a concrete way as part of the American socioeconomic system in the World War II era. Okay. Right? So he was he was interested in what Jim already said, how the casteness of race in the US creates these systemic and really tangible barriers to success explicitly through control of resources like education and employment and things like yeah. that. Yeah, and those are some of the same themes that Wilkerson echoes. And admittedly, she doesn't say that she was been the only person to think of race and caste the same. But what she brings to bear is her eight pillars of caste. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Myrtle makes it this really explicit long before Wilkerson comes along. And, And then there was actually an attempt to implement some of these ideas in India like in the 1940s, for instance, while Myrtle was working on this study, B.R. Ambedkar, who was the leader of the Dalit rights movement, advocating for the rights of former untouchables, who are now referred to as Dalits in India. Ambedkar reached out to W.E.B. Du Bois, actually, in the 1940s about this very thing in a letter. And he said, 
uh, this is an, a quote, but I won't make you read it, Eric. <laughs> it must be a good quote because I only get the bad quotes. <laughs> That's right. It is. Um, so Ambedkar says he's been a, quote, student of the Negro problem. And then he says, quote, there's so much similarity between the position of the untouchables in India huh. and of the position of the Negroes in America that the study of the latter is not only natural, but necessary. Interesting. So there's a clear yeah. comparison going on here. And actually, Du Bois wrote back. Their correspondence ended after this one exchange of letters, as far as the historical record can tell us. But the alliances or, or sort of the affiliations didn't end. They weren't formal political alliances. But for instance, when the Dalit Panthers formed and they issued a manifesto in 1971, it explicitly referenced the Black Panthers and uh, their political yeah. slogan of Black Power. So there was this connection even in the early 20th century. Huh. Yeah, so so Wilkerson, you know, to her credit, she does touch a bit on the Embedkar Du Bois connection, and not to criticize her for doing things that maybe she had no intention or space to do, but it would have been nice to see a little bit more about the connections between activist groups and the two locations. Mm -hmm. It's also worth noting that that has continued into the present. So. You're talking about after Embedkar. There's even more of this caste language floating around. Yeah. I mean, even in the 1990s, for instance, the Indian sociologist Andre Bate, uh, don't be thrown off by that French sounding name. He's actually Indian. Um, a well-known sociologist who argued once again that race and caste are indeed these parallel systems. Hmm. And he did that by looking specifically at how women are treated in each system. So he triangulated race and caste with gender. I'll link to that one in the show notes too. Uh -huh. And then nowadays, you know, even up right up to the present, scholars like Nicholas Dirks and Rupa Viswanath, who are, they're both anthropologists and historians. They're these days producing what you might call sort of Marxist critiques or Marxian critiques of how caste and race systems determine resource control and allocation. And so a contention from someone like Viswanath might be, race and caste matter, but what they're really obscuring are these questions that are fundamentally about class. Hmm. And in some ways, that's kind of a continuation of the line of thought that was present back in the Myrtle study we were just talking about, because it's, you know, it's not asking so much how are caste and race alike or how are caste and race different, but instead looking at the material outcomes of those two systems. Okay. Um, thank you for contextualizing. I can see that now we have a full century from Du Bois through Embedkar and Myrdal, and now all the way up to Viswanath, still working on these connections between race and caste. So it seems like it's a pretty robust literature all the way through the 20th century. Yeah, that's right. And the political sort of trend uh, that started with the correspondence between Embedkar and Du Bois has also continued into the 21st century. So for instance, the United Nations has been holding these international conferences on racism and xenophobia since 2001. Hmm. And since that initial meeting, Dalit rights groups have been lobbying to have caste discrimination included as a form of human rights violation that would be internationally recognized and denounced by the UN, just as racism is at those conferences. Interesting. But for various reasons, uh, mostly political, uh, I would say caste discrimination really hasn't reached the level of international awareness that race-based discrimination has. Why, why would that be? Well, let's use that 2001 example, that conference. The government of India totally blocked Dalit activists who wanted to participate in that conference. Huh. You know, the Constitution of India, which was actually written largely by B.R. Ambedkar himself, 
it makes caste-based discrimination illegal. And the government of India does have a, a really robust sort of affirmative action program in place. Despite those things, the government has never been especially supportive of scholars or activists who want to draw parallels between racism and casteism. There's been a fair amount of like outright hushing of that, including huh. the UN conference. And this is really important, actually, in the in this exact political moment, because there are really explicit ideological and also personal alliances between Donald Trump and Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi. Oh, yeah. He's the second term prime minister who's pretty closely aligned with Hindu nationalist groups in much the same way that Trump has actually aligned with white nationalist groups. Wow. That also would have been a really cool point of connection for the book to explore more. The book does mention that Dalit Panthers only once, I think, in passing and doesn't get into the political responses to thinking of caste and race as similar. Hmm. Yeah, totally right. And in case you haven't picked it up yet, that's my big take home critique of Wilkerson's book that, you know, the ideas she's presenting here, as you said just a minute ago, Eric, they have so much more depth to them that she could have drawn on. You know, Joe, you started off saying you liked the book and Alan gave it kind of a glowing review, but you haven't said why you liked it yet. So what did you find <laughs> right. that was good about it? All you've done is complain. <laughs> that's, that's a fair question. Let me think. I guess I'll respond with, with this. This discussion about caste and race could be a discussion about how caste is like race. It could also be a discussion about how race is like caste, right? It could go either way. Hmm. People like Risley and Jones and the other sort of early progenitors of this comparison were kind of of the former sort. They were more familiar with race being Europeans. And so when they encountered caste, they wanted to know how caste might be like race. They were basically, you could say, exporting insights from Europe to India and not the other way around. Right. That, that feels like that's still basically the way it is. We usually do look to, you know, the United States and Great Britain as the place where race kind of happens and then where new ideas about race emerge. And then somehow we take the ideas that occur here and we apply those to the other contexts. Yeah, I think I think that's true. In fact, I'd say that's inherent to a lot of the, even the critical race scholarship happening now, that directionality. Huh. That's a good um, point. Maybe, you know, maybe especially in sociology and anthropology, that's an issue. And and here's my answer to your question, Jim. Wilkerson, she does the opposite here, huh. right? She, instead of saying, how is a caste like race in the U.S., using the U.S. as the reference category, she's saying, hey, race-like stuff happens in other places under other names. And the things we learn in those places can be abstracted to the U.S. to learn something new about race as it operates here. So she's She's flipping it. That that discussion really hasn't been introduced here on a large public scale, I would say, really until now. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, so in very simple terms, you might say she's exporting insights from India to the U.S. instead of, you know, my usual lens of the other direction from U.S. Europe to India. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So she, you could say she's kind of turned the table. She's flipping the usual direction of that conversation, which is important. And it's also an important sort of positioning in the broader project in academia in general right now, which is looking to decenter Euro-American dominated thought and scholarship about all kinds of things, including forms of inequality. You know, at least in my sort of humanities and social science world, it's this book is bringing together scholars and activists across disciplines to think through something that 
I've only really ever discussed with my colleagues who focus on South Asia, which is mm. caste, right? Like people yeah. from other yeah. disciplines are asking and thinking about caste in ways that I haven't seen them do before, which is pretty cool. That, okay, that sounds plausible to me. And I think it's probably needless to say in 2020 that many people in the U.S. are dealing much more directly with what they would recognize as racism and casteism maybe just be less familiar to them in their everyday lives. So there's that advantage too. It kind of shakes people out of thinking in the same ways. Right. Yeah. That That is part of, I think, what makes her book feel unique or kind of groundbreaking. And so that's probably good news for potential readers. Like, you know, unless you have the kind of background in this scholarly trajectory of looking at caste and race over the centuries, you're probably going to learn something new when you read her book. And, you know, I still feel like I couldn't understand why she didn't engage more of the stuff that we've just touched on really briefly today, you know, because pretty much any of it could have actually supported her main idea. But it's still a good book. That's a fair critique, Joe. And, you know, as an anthropologist who views everything through the lens of Samoa, I'm not surprised that that you would have liked to have seen more of the treatment of India. I mean, since that is where this whole idea about race caste came into the Western scholarship, uh, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be a good in anthropologist if you didn't want to hear more about, you know, what you know about. <laughs> right. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And for me too, uh, as a biological anthropologist, yeah, I'm disappointed that Wilkerson never got much into, you know, scientific racism. And that's so such a common thread between race in the U.S. and in Nazi Germany. Yeah. She avoids what I think had to have been significant changes in the caste system, particularly with the rise of eugenic thinking in the United States and particularly in England. That's a good point. As another biological anthropologist, I'm right there with you, Alan. I, it sounds like it really misses the mark on at least one thing that we try to look at in this podcast, and that's at how scientific racism, ideologies, and arguments are used in different areas, like we did a couple of episodes back on scientific racism mm. that we dropped at the end of July. I know it wasn't in her bailiwick, but I think that would have enriched the discussion uh, Right, Jim, that, that's a really great point. But the last thing, or maybe the last thing I want to say <laughs> is that, you know, the Wilkerson kind of gives a sense of set categories and closed systems. And I like to shy away from those universal answers and set categories and towards messy complexity. And mm. so instead of there being a yes or no answer or choice, either race is the same as caste or different from caste, you know, my understanding is that, hey, they're both hierarchical systems that become naturalized. And in that sense, they share an awfully lot. But my guess is that like any local racial system, they have local variations. So race is and isn't the same as caste, just like racial systems are, mm -hmm. as you guys have shown, the same and different in different locations and times. This must yeah. be why I like hanging around with you guys, because I think historians like the messiness also. <laughs> well, we've given everybody a lot of context. And, <laughs> um, you know, I always appreciate that kind of stuff. But there's still a big question that I've had, and I've been holding on to it. And I don't know if, if you've actually answered it yet. 
So what are the implications of saying race versus saying caste? Does this, does this actually make any difference at all in the end? You know, I think yes and no, it makes a difference. I think that in sort of academic circles where people are already thinking about things that Jim and Alan and us on this podcast are thinking about like scientific racism and how race gets naturalized, there really isn't all that much difference between that conception of understanding race as, you know, sort of a social construction that is underpinned by this faulty biology and and caste. Caste is similarly constructed. It's similarly underpinned by a faulty biology. It's similarly reinforced by, you know, the same kinds of political and social policing practices. Okay. But I don't think that your average American citizen thinks of, or, or until this point, has really thought of race in America as being like caste. And I think that introducing that idea to sort of an American public forces Americans to question themselves by taking this construct of caste, which we like to think of in the United States as sort of this backward and anachronistic uh, Oriental idea almost, right? Yeah, like a sort of orientalized, backward, primitive idea that is sort of silly and forcing us to apply it to ourselves. That that is something kind of revolutionary, right? It forces Americans to think really differently about our own racial system if we call it a caste system. So it's kind of a rhetorical move, but I think it has implications for how, say, your average layperson would think about race. And talk about timing that that book would come out this year with all the stuff yeah. that's happened. I'm going to go out on a limb in answering Eric's question. If I were to think ahead to 25 years from now and predict, I don't think Wilkerson's I- intervention of using cast is going to stick. Huh. Mm not as sort of an academic or political enterprise. But I think for this moment, for individuals who have not thought about how systemic, long-term embedded race is, I think it's a really useful intervention. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point, Alan. I think listeners should check it out. And I'd love to hear from listeners who've gotten familiar with ideas about race and science through the podcast. I'd love to hear what they think about it. I'm right now, I'm I'm teaching a course this spring on injustice and health, and I'm thinking I might use Wilkerson, and Mm. I have not made a decision yet, but I think just to talk about how systems of class and race um, become embedded, that Wilkerson might actually be a nice lens onto that. You're not going to reach back for Gunnar Myrdal from uh, the 1940s? Even though you quoted him beautifully. (laughs) All right. Well, well, I want to thank you, Alan, for coming back to the podcast a second time. Thanks, Alan. I think it's important, and it has been nice to talk with you guys. You too. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jim, the old guy. (laughs) (laughs) We always get the outro wrong. (laughs) 